0: Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a polybag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at DailyDownForce.com slash shop. That's DailyDownForce.com slash shop.
1: Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Hill State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't the first still they build, I bet. No. <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had <laughs> worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, aka Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers.
0: He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped up car and he, he's complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match but he thought he was doing pretty good
1: and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappear but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken, and so he ran <laughs> off the boat. And Actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, The
0: Scene Ball Podcast.
1: Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where Steve Wade will always be the king of the NASCAR press box. Oh, go on. (laughs) No, really, keep going. Keep going. Tell me more. Steve, after a bit of a break, we are back, and we are on a new feed. And we're already seeing some improved numbers, so I'm excited about that.
2: Yes, sir. That's very good. I'm glad to hear that, Rick.
1: We are in your new house. You took me on a tour of this new house, and I got to say, man. Oh, me. I got to tell you, I am truly impressed. You have an elevator. You have an elevator in your house. That's how
2: the only way an old man like me can get around a three-story house is to I have he- an elevator.
1: I hear you. Well, you know, while I was slaving the as a Bush Series editor, you must have been making the big bucks up there in the ivory tower at uh, scene.
2: Uh, no, not quite. Uh <laughs> I don't want to tell you how much I owe on this house. <laughs> Just joking around, of course. It was, uh, it was something that uh, was essential to the house. So uh, quite frankly, I'm glad we've got it.
1: It kind of handy. In all seriousness, it is a beautiful house. And I I'm too. looking forward to spending I... some time with you here over the next few weeks. Hopefully, we last a few more weeks, the podcast. Tell us what we got coming up in this episode.
2: Well, I think we got something to do with Ricky Rudd, which would be very good, and I think that uh, we're going to answer probably the most oft asked question we've received in recent weeks, and it's all
1: about JD Stacy.
2: JD Stacy, the mysterious team owner who came on board in the late seventies and hung around for a few years.
1: Now, exactly how long do you have to record today? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Can't tell all the J.D. Stacy stories, but I tell you, he was a very mercurial figure in uh, racing, and very controversial, and very legally entangled. Uh, and at the same time, he managed to uh, field a team, and he also managed to sponsor at one time seven other race teams. So there were at least eight cars running around on a track with J.D. Stacy on the quarter panel.
1: And Ricky Rudd being there from Virginia, and he broke into the sport about the same time that Grand National Scene started. So Scene and Ricky Rudd kind of grew up together.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Ricky Rudd broke onto the Scene in the late 70s. He started out driving Bill Champion's Ford. Bill Champion was an independent driver back then, and he gave uh, Ricky his shot. And Ricky showed up, and nobody, of course, knew who he was. But the second thing that we noticed about him, that he was, he looked like he was a baby faced kid. No two ways about it.
1: I was just struck by how humble he seemed as opposed to the just absolutely ferocious person that he was on the racetrack.
2: You've described Ricky perfectly because uh, when it came to dealing with the media or the public, uh, he was just a very super nice guy. But on the track, his competitiveness came out. Of course, he was involved in more than one scrape along the line. And this is something I think he inherited. His competitiveness, because his family was basically a racing family. And Ricky was not afraid, even though he was small in stature and did look like a teenager, he was not afraid to tangle anything. He tells a story about when he was a kid. They'd go to uh, places where homes were being built, and they climb up to the half-built roof with towels wrapped around the necks like Superman's cape. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> they jump off of those roofs and into sand piles that were prevalent back in construction days. And they call that fun. Well, I tell you, it took a kid with some nerve to try to even do that. But that translated into his competitiveness on the track.
1: Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Ricky, and then you and I will be back to discuss it in depth.
0: For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom, That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org.
1: Now, you were on the road pretty much full-time for 35 years?
3: Uh, well, I was over 30. Uh, I want to say somewhere around 33. First race was in 75, and it was sort of a hit-and-miss schedule for a while. But uh, So pretty much
1: full-time since the early 80s. After you stepped out of the car, how hard was it for you to get used to not being on the road?
3: Well, it's it's an adjustment. I mean, you it's probably no different than anybody else that works that one job for so many years, and... And then all of a sudden, you know, you know, that job stops, comes in an and you're and you're looking and you're saying, you know, gosh, what am I going to do with all my time? It, you just sort of, you know, I, I sort of smell the roses a little more than I used to. I was always in that go, go, go mode, you know, and uh, it's kind of nice to sort of back that pace off a little bit and kind of enjoy what's going on around you. And I had a great time being able to spend time with the family, you know, Landon and my wife, Linda, and. And really uh, just sort of enjoyed
1: the simple things of life, something that we haven't had a chance to do all the years that we're racing. Ricky, you ran your first Winston Cup race on March the 2nd, 1975 at Rockingham. You had great hair back then. (laughs) Yeah,
3: I had hair. you
1: (laughs) (laughs) You started 26th in that race. You finished 11th. What was it like for you back then trying to break in as an eighteen year old against guys like Richard Petty, Kelly Yarborough, Bobby Allison. What was it like for you to try to do that?
3: Well I think at the time they they really weren't ready, the sport wasn't ready for, for young guys to come into the sport. You know, much different than it is today. Back in during that time, no one really wanted to give you a chance in the race cars unless you were in your mid 30s, uh, yeah. even in the 20s, was considered too young that you hadn't been seasoned enough. You haven't gotten much uh, enough experience yet. So the the big thing was uh, is being too young for that day. 18, 19 years old, and um, had raw talent uh, like many of the guys do today. But the, the difference in now and then is that the kids that come along today they already have a lot of car experience at 18 years old. Where I was 18 years old, came from dirt bike, motorcycles, motocross, uh, go karts. Um, was used to speed, but never had been in a race car, period, until that first race at Rockingham, North Carolina was my first time in a race car, which would not be allowed today, um, first of all. That was the first time you'd sat in a race car? That first time in a race car. Um, really? I, I, I tell you well, a little story before that. I actually went to Daytona to the Daytona 500. Uh, the Bush Series, uh, I'm not sure what it was called, late model. Late sportsman. model sportsman yeah, late time. Models. We went there with a the car, then we didn't know how to work on them as a group. I didn't know how to drive them. Uh, my brother and his friends were working on it. Missed a race, so when I say it was first time in a race car, that was my first time yeah. in a race car. So about uh, less than two weeks later, I, then I was in a, a cup car with no test time or anything. So sort of fed to the wolves, but, you know, I wouldn't trade it now for anything,
1: but it was a pretty steep learning curve. Now, you talk about racing against a who's who in NASCAR history. You were on the track with Richard Petty, Kel Yarborough, Bobby Allison, David Pearson. I mean, they were at the height of their abilities. How intimidating was it for you to be racing against them?
3: Well, it, really not as much as you would think. And the reason for that, I was so busy from the time I was eight, nine years old racing competitive go-karts all over the country and then later on motocross that i didn't really know much about the sport of stock car racing i didn't know too much about it i mean i uh, wasn't that i thought thought that i was above it but i was so caught up in my race and routines that i didn't really look around and, and look at the professional levels that were out there I, I knew that what i was doing at the time karting and motorcycles i worked very hard to try to be uh, good at that and didn't really look down the road and uh, the 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 dream that I had at being, you know, a kid at 12 years old was Formula One racing. It wasn't really stock car racing. Really, And they're just, you know, as I got older, that was just an impossibility. And then the opportunity to drive a stock car, that just sort of popped up kind of real quick. It wasn't like it was a long-term plan. You know, if it had been smart and tried to plan it, it probably would have never worked out. Yeah. So it didn't really have a long-term plan. But as far as the, you know, all the greats of the sport you just mentioned, which were truly great, great drivers, I didn't really know the names in a sport. I knew Richard Petty's name. So when I, the first time I went to Rockingham, North Carolina, there wasn't a lot of intimidation from, you know, racing against the greats. It was more of an intimidation for me to try to learn how to, to, to drive those very heavy cars that, to me, felt like, you know, trying to drive a tank with, uh, you know, 10,000 horsepower. They just had a lot of horsepower but didn't <laughs> handle very good compared to what I'd been in. So, I, you know, I was intimidated by that. But as far as the legends, uh, after I got into it and started, you know, seeing what the sport was all about, well, gosh, I was, I was overwhelmed at that time. But I'm kind of glad that I didn't know who these guys were in the
1: beginning. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah,
3: that's exactly <laughs> right.
1: You drove pretty much a full season for Junior Don Levy in 1979. Then in 1981, you ran every race for Die Guard. In 1982, you moved over to Richard Childress's deal. At what point did you feel fairly comfortable with your position in sport?
3: Well, you know, when I was with Junie, we didn't, uh, back in 79, up until that time, when I came with Junie, I'd only run about maybe three or four um, at that many short track races, period. Not let alone cup races, but short track races. Yeah. So Junie really was uh, very instrumental in, and help him um, bring the best out of me on the short tracks. And that was one of my, probably my strongest suits was short track racing. But when I came to Ju- uh, Junie, I had no experience virtually at all. And and he was, Junie, besides being a car owner, was a very
1: good uh, instructor. You got your first win in 1983 at Riverside while driving for Richard Childress. What did that mean to you personally?
3: Well, at the time, when I came to work for Richard, it was 1982. And at that time... I'd driven for die guard, uh, the year before, and, and then I was let go so they could put Bobby Allison in the seat. And actually, they wanted to keep me in a, in a sort of a second-team operation, and we worked hard on it, and uh, I, that wasn't the best interest for me at the time, so I was able to get a release, but that release didn't come till right before the Daytona 582. Uh, Richard Childress went down to Daytona testing uh, before the big event, but during a winter testing with Greg Sachs, and Greg took an end-over-end flip down there and put him in the hospital quite a while, and that's how it all came together. Richard called me, because knowing that, you know, that's late in the game, everybody's got... Ride so it sort of worked out good for me at the time, but uh, but at that time, Richard's operation you know wasn't by no means what it is today. It was Richard had enough money to run a few races, and if we went (laughs) to the Daytona 500 and did okay, we could have enough money to run a few more races. Wow, so it wasn't signed here and we'll run a whole season. It wasn't till right on the probably the, the eve of going to the Daytona 500, did um sponsorship from Piedmont Airlines and all that come together. And uh, it was a different time. It was a lot of neat guys there that wanted to work hard. None of them had names. None of them had really prospered at that time. So it was neat to be a part of that. And that's one thing Richard was able to do for me is we went to Texas to an outlaw race during the winter to get to, uh, get me familiar with the team. But also, I uh, had a good chance to win that race. And we did win that race at uh, College Station, Texas. It was a um, I'm not sure what the sanctioning body was, but there were some big guys there. Labonte, Terry Labonte was there. Bobby Allison was there. So it, we beat some pretty good cars there and it was a big that's the first time i'd ever won in a car so yeah. it was a big confidence booster for me and richard was very good at identifying what he needed to do how to strengthen the team so it was uh it was a, a lot of fun
1: during that time you had a lot of road course success at riverside sonoma watkins land those kinds of places which of those was your favorite and why
3: you know i just enjoyed all of them i enjoyed the road courses um i, I have to say i was kind of partial to riverside california uh, just because it was as, uh, as a kid, uh, we never actually went to the West Coast to race, and it was the first time I was racing on the West Coast and had a lot of people that I had known over the years from the go-karting and stuff. So it was kind of, wouldn't, wouldn't, obviously wouldn't call it a hometown crowd, but uh, it was neat going out there, first of all, and then and driving the cars. And we had some success there. The tracks that I think are the most challenging by far, um, you know, Sonoma, uh, Sears Point, uh, would, be the, mm-hmm. would definitely be the, the most difficult track of all the road courses that we had run
1: of course i have to ask about the 1984 bush clash and in that race you had one of the most horrific looking accidents that has ever been in, in nascar what do you remember about that race, yeah. if anything well you should have seen it that wreck from my side <laughs> <laughs> I it, I
3: really it was I i don't remember a lot about it it knocked yeah. me out When i remember everything about it i remember you know uh, getting tapped in a back bumper, skidding backwards, and getting ready to hit the inside wall. At that time, that wall wasn't designed correctly, and it was going to be a pretty major hit. It was I would have been hitting it very similar to what Elliot Sadler hit up at Pocono. It'd be almost a head-on type blow backwards. Yeah. So the car took off, got airborne. That was back when before the roof flaps mm-hmm. and uh, before the restrictor plate. So uh, it was a quite a. It was it was shaping up to be a big ride, and I went way up in the air. I remember that. It came down first time I hit it, knocked it knocked me out. I don't remember the rest of it. Uh, but it was I was sore there for a while, and it. Could have happened at a, uh, the worst time. Really, I sort of felt like I'd worked my whole career up to that point, even going back to the to the go karting days, to get to the chance to drive for Bud Moore. And here we are, starting the s- season with Bud Moore in '84. And uh, it looks like I might have a wreck that could take me out of you know take me out of the driver's seat for quite a while while I was healing. And uh, that was the biggest fight was trying to overcome the pain and not not letting it get to me so I c- could start the
1: season. Now later on in your career, you started a streak of consecutive races. But that incident, the Bush Clash in 84, is really what sealed your reputation as kind of the Iron Man because you had the wreck in the Bush Clash, you raced the next week in the Daytona 500, finished 7th, and then you go on to Richmond. Uh, there are some amazing photos of you with your eyes taped open, bloodshot eyes, I mean, just beat to a pulp. I know that you raced with, with some kind of flak jacket or something taped up. Ricky, how were you able to do that?
3: You know, I look at it now, I think back, I say, gosh, you know, if I was looking from the outside, I'd say, this guy's crazy. And uh, I think just determination, dedication, you know, so committed to wanting to, to make it in that sport. And, and all my early years was more or less trying to, you know, trying to prove yourself to that you deserve a spot in the series. And so most of all the uh, early years were was just that, working to gain credibility so I could stay in the sport for a long time. And and didn't really. All I knew was that that was a great opportunity to drive for Bud Moore. And in any way I humanly could possibly overcome all the, all the pain and if there's such a thing as blocking things out mentally, I was going to do it. I think with that focus, um, you'd be you'd be surprised. You know what the human mind can do. Uh, if you can, like say, stay focused. Don't focus on the negative. It'd been really easy to say, man, I don't feel good. I'm a, I'm going to run <laughs> today. But. Uh, I knew that we had a car that was going to be capable of winning Richmond. Richmond was sort of a hometown track, and I think it had to have been anywhere but Richmond. I was more sore that week than I was during the Daytona 500, just all the bruises and the torn cartilage and such. I think it would have been anywhere probably other than sort of the home track. It would have been – it would have probably been more of an iffy situation if I could even start to
1: race. In the 1980s and early 90s, you drove for Bud Moore, you drove for Kenny Bernstein, you drove for Rick Hendrick looking back on it now how did those rides stack up against each other
3: well they were they're all really sort of different from each each other uh when i went to bud moore's um again a big opportunity and bud's team was still at that time was considered one of the top you know very top teams of racing and bud was more like a father type figure very he ran a very you know tight ship and very hands-on and knew how to do everything there was to do on a race car and Including building the engines, and which he oversaw a lot of that with his with his sons and and all the guys that worked in the motor shop. But um, just a great learning experience with Bud, and a lot of a lot of respect for Bud Moore. Uh, even today, he just kind of guy you didn't need any paperwork; you, you could do it with a handshake. We had a contract, I don't think we ever looked at it, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember one of the neatest things about Bud: we had won the race in 1987 in Atlanta, and uh, we had just moved on to the lake. I'd been saving the money and built the house, and I mean we hadn't been moved moved into the house two weeks and I was a pretty avid water skier in that time, and the prize for the day for winning the race, besides the purse, was a ski Nautique ski boat, which was sort of the Mac Daddy of all the ski boats at the time, <laughs> tournament yeah. boats. So anyway, that I didn't even realize it till we were in victory lane and we're getting ready to settle, you know, sort of wind the victory lane celebration down, and they come towing this boat into the uh, into the uh, victory lane. And wow, uh, I, you know, I never ran tournament water skiing, but I was probably a amateur tournament level type skier i was decent but uh it really knew all about the boat and here it comes pulling up there you know it's like christmas time and anyway bud says you know, you know what we're supposed to do is take the boat sell it and uh, split the monies no but no no but that's what we're supposed to do. but, but he, yeah. he i didn't have to even ask i mean right then he said he knew i had that lake house he says uh yeah i hope you enjoy your new boat you know and but just that's just kind of how he was him and his family but uh, you know a lot of great guys richard childers um kenny bernstein was a very good innovator during his day and he was, he was the one that were, to me probably more so than anywhere I'd been at that time was so focused on advancing with engineering and that, and was able to put together a good combination with Bob Riley you know a world famous engineer with Larry McReynolds as crew chief we had a lot of engine troubles those years but very fast race car on the track and uh, Kenny ran a very good organization and Rick Hendricks you know what can you say uh, that, that operation at the time was uh, continuing to build strength it wasn't uh, at the level it is today but they were
1: getting there pretty quickly. In 1988 and 1989, you had a couple of pretty heated run-ins with Dale Earnhardt, both of them at North Wilkesboro. The first one in 1988, you were running one-two when you went after each other with about 40 laps to go, and NASCAR wound up sending both of you to the back of the pack. What do you remember about that day? I remember
3: we had some good battles at Wilkesboro, and uh, it's, it's kind of hard for me to believe. that As well as we had run there over the years, we we had some runs that weren't so good either, but we had two or three wins that, to me, would have uh, – I'm not really sure how we ended up not winning. But usually yeah. had something to do with uh, bumping into Dale Earnhardt. Usually was what caused the lack of those wins. <laughs> but but I, that particular day, I'm not really sure. It seemed like to me the first one you mentioned is, you know, Dale bumped me and I finally got a chance to repay the favor and turned him around. And then so they – they didn't park both of us, but they seemed like they made – I remember going to the back of the pack. I don't remember him going to the back of the pack, but maybe maybe that's the way the story was. Yeah. But I remember being at the back of the pack and uh, – worked the whole race to get back to catch him, and i finally caught him, uh, i turned him and spun
1: him, and uh and that that cost me 10 grand that day i remember that <laughs> that one cost you 10 yeah. grand, really yeah. the next year in 89 it was the last lap going in turn one you and he made contact both of you spun jeff bodine went on to win and after the race it got pretty testy
3: well, it was as closest thing to a riot as I've ever seen, I and mean, it was, it was almost scary. I knew they didn't have nowhere near that police security to handle that situation because it was he had a lot of fans that were you know upset, and I had a lot of fans that were upset, and it was uh, it was pretty interesting. It was kind of scary there for a while. I remember we was it really? Yeah, we we ended up going out of the infield that day um, under a blanket in a van. Uh, Covered up so nobody could see us. We used to park in the infield, and you had to yeah. work your way yeah. out the traffic. And I remember, I remember laying under a tarp in Larry McReynolds' van that was <laughs> going out of race track.
1: <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. I remember when he was interviewed after the race. I don't guess I'd ever seen Earnhardt that mad. The nicest thing that he said about you was that he hoped that you got suspended for the rest of the yeah. year. Did you ever sit down after that and kind of iron things out? Well,
3: actually, much many years later, probably the year that that he died. Into the, that previous season was it was Rockingham or or Atlanta, but it was almost the last race of the year, and we were both driving out of the racetrack. For some reason, we were both driving and and come up each other on the highway. And he rolled a window down, so he rolled a windows down. And he had Teresa with him and I had Linda with me. And I think Landon, our son, was about two years old then, not very old. He said, let's go eat. So we all, we all ended up going down to, we went downtown uh, Charlotte. I remember we ate at a Chinese steakhouse down there. P.F. Chang's, that's what it was yeah. in Charlotte. Ended up meeting our family, sat down and ate and had a good time. And, and I had a little Place out in Huntersville, I was working on. I said, if you need a bulldozer, come on, borrow my bulldozer. And just, I think it was his attempt to try to, you know, bury the hatchet. And, and it, I mean, we had a real good dinner and, uh, and that was it. And so, you know, yeah. see you later. But I, I'd say that's probably as close to we ever had us patching things up. We used to, actually, when Lynn and I first used to come to Charlotte, we used to stay with him and Teresa quite a bit up on the lake house. Back then, uh, we didn't have money for the hotel rooms. So right. We just stayed at his house for about three or four weeks there during Charlotte and Wilkesboro race race weekends. This is
1: before the heated
3: <laughs> This is before yeah. he took, took my job at Richard Childress <laughs> Racing.
1: Uh, but anyway, I do want to ask about 1991 at Sonoma. You crossed under the checkered flag first, but the win went to Davey Allison. As a journalist, I'm supposed to be objective and not have an opinion. But Ricky Rudd, you got hosed that day, well, big time.
3: There was uh, definitely uh, didn't understand
1: it. Yeah, there was contact.
3: We got together, and it was minor contact. It wasn't like it was something serious and somebody trying to wreck somebody. It was hard racing coming up yeah. to get the white flag. And, uh, and I came in there. I had fresh tires. Davey didn't. He's playing defense because he didn't, you know, it was a matter of just sort of how it was going to work out. Didn't know if we had enough time to run him back down. And he wasn't as quick as he needed to be. But anyway, uh, we got together on turn 11, Came, got the white flag, came back around to get the checker flag, and instead it was a black flag. Uh, never have understood it to this day. Never had an explanation. And uh, But, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? You can pull over and quit and say, "I'm throwing in a towel. I've had enough. I, you know, I can't. I have a hard enough time beating competitors, but certainly I can't beat NASCAR. I could have had that attitude, or I can say, Well, you know, what you gonna do? I can just, we'll just roll with it and hope it doesn't show up again like that.' Uh, so we chose the later because that was '91, and I went on to run till you know 2006 or seven or something like that.
1: I know that you mentioned that you were fined ten thousand for the deal with Earnhardt in '88. You were fined ten thousand for a deal with Jeff Gordon. That was fifty. That was $50,000. For Charlotte? Yeah. Do you want your money back?
3: (laughs) You know, I give NASCAR the benefit of the doubt, but it certainly wasn't have at it without paying a fine. I mean, yeah, you can have at it. But you know, I, it was a fifty thousand dollars fine at Charlotte, which um, you know, that's neither here nor there. And ten thousand dollars at Wilkesboro, they added up pretty much. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of money in fines.
1: <laughs> say, for instance, after the deal with Jeff Gordon at Charlotte, you were interviewed on TV, and you said we kind of bumped going down the front stretch, and then Jeff must have got loose or, or something in Turn One. How much would you have liked to say, you know what? I hit him, and I meant to hit him.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never, I never said I didn't hit him on purpose. I did hit him on purpose, but it was a payback for what he did. The, yeah. The pre- this corner and i drove into his back bumper and and i let my temper get the best of me and i didn't turn him loose in time i ran him all the way down the front straightaway and had his back axle off the ground and i you know if i'd have been (laughs) smart about it i'd have let him sit back down but i was i was really wanting to give him a ride and i ended up wrecking myself too so i never really apologized for that uh and never will to this day i didn't deserve it he didn't deserve an apology for that the fine came i really i really wasn't really I think maybe I carried it a step too far and they, they needed to, you know, bring in the reins a little bit on me and they probably did the right thing.
1: Steve, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was that 1984 Bush Clash wreck that he had driving Bud Moore's car. Right. Were you in the press box? Did you see that happen yeah. or were you out of the... Either- no,
2: I was Media in Santa the press Rada. box of wow. that particular event. And when we saw it happen, initially, we didn't think it was going to be too bad because we saw him sliding right to the pit road wall off of turn four. And uh, we thought, well, he's going to hit the wall and bounce back and hope it's not too hard of a hit because, you know, it was on grass. Grass is obviously slicker than concrete. So he hit the very corner of the pit road wall into the first turn sort of an angle and when he hit it his car got airborne and i mean it went straight up and then it rolled eight times not on its side but on its nose yeah and uh boy that was that was very frightening to see
1: and it was frightening to see not only the car coming apart but there's video that you can see ricky coming out of that car
2: yeah absolutely that, that looked like to me at one point he was about halfway out course, it wasn't that way, but he was outside the car for a moment.
1: Well, that happened on Sunday. The very next Sunday, he races in the Daytona 500, finishes seventh. That's right. Finishes seventh in the Daytona 500.
2: Nobody thought that he would be in that race. Uh, We didn't see much of him during that week, and rightly so. I, I had a feeling that he was trying to preserve his health as much as he could. He did a few mandatory things that he had to do, but uh, I don't remember anybody being able to talk with him uh, during that period of time. And so he got back into the car, the Daytona 500. I tell you personally, I was down on pit road during the pre-race ceremonies and stuff like that, and I only got a quick glimpse
1: of him, and
2: and he was gone again.
1: And he looked like Rocky Balboa after. (laughs) I don't (laughs) see
2: how he was doing it. And uh, yeah, he finished seventh in that race, and we figured normally under the circumstances we sort of figured that he might not even show up at Richmond, and we were wrong.
1: He showed up okay. Oh, did he, he showed up all right. Yeah, absolutely, he showed up.
2: He got I, I mean, at that time I'd never seen anything like it. He had he had bandages on. He had uh, black eyes. His eyes were red, and he had various ointments. On his skin, as you could see. And he also had a flak jacket to protect his body, which had been beaten up pretty bad at Daytona. The flak jacket was a project of Humpy Wheeler, who got it made for him, and he was going to use it in the race.
1: I don't know where that just otherworldly drive to get into a race car comes from. Because to go through that kind of wreck, number one is one thing, but then to... Stuff yourself into a flak jacket. You know there are there are pictures of Ricky Rudd in his car at Daytona with tape on his eyes, keeping his eyes yeah. open. Yeah. Where does that kind of just overwhelming drive come from?
2: I think it's present in every driver at some level. I think some have it more than others, but if you are a competitor in any sport. And we've seen this in football. We've seen this in basketball, hockey, any professional sport you want to mention. If you are a true competitor in those sports, you cannot stand to be out of action. You want to play hurt. How many times have you heard that phrase? Play hurt. And they do. when, If at all possible, they play hurt. Well, that was just like Ricky Rudd was at Richmond. He wanted to play hurt. He wanted to get the job done. And did he ever. He didn't
1: just play Hurt. He won Hurt. Right. He went to Richmond, and he won that race, Steve.
2: Yeah, he absolutely did. And I can tell you how he won it. It was a situation where teams were running out of tires because Goodyear had run out of tires. They sold out. And most teams had maybe eight sets to get through that Richmond race. And Ricky's car kept getting better and better because Bud Moore's guys kept making chassis adjustments. Well, they, too, ran out of tires late in the race. And the most serious challenger, Daryl Walter, also ran out of tires. Now, the difference was that Ricky pitted after Daryl. And he took on old tires again. They didn't have new tires. So his tires were just a bit fresher than Daryl's. And he ran Daryl down to win the race. That was a major difference in the race. Nobody could hardly believe what they saw. This beaten-up kid who should be at home or in a hospital, <laughs> had gotten into a race car and won the race. I dashed down to the pits after the road to get to Ricky as quickly as I could because I wanted to get something special before he came to the press box. And he had several family members there, and they were all crying. But the family
1: Were they members, really? Absolutely. Wow.
2: All in tears. But the family was not the only one in tears. There were fans in tears on pit road, waving and smiling at Ricky as he got into victory lane. I've never seen anything like it.
1: Okay, so that set the stage for what I would consider to be (laughs) of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of quotes that we had in Grand National Scene, Wednesday Cup Scene, NASCAR Scene. This is the one quote that basically jumped off the page. March 1st, 1984, Grand National Scene, you did a sidebar on Ricky and how he was dealing with the accident and everything. And you asked him how he was dealing with the pain of his accident. And I quote, Steve, "Okay, what am I doing for pain? Cocaine. A couple of lines a day. (laughs) Now, Steve, that was obviously a different time in a different place. Right. In a million years, there is no way that he was being serious. He was giving you a hard time. He was joking around. But in today's world, can you begin to imagine anybody saying that in jest? Can you imagine the furious backlash that
2: that driver would receive? Well, I, you're exactly right. Uh, even Ricky today, I don't think, would have said that. But it was a different time. Now, I'll be honest with you, you know, uh, when he said cocaine two lines a day, <laughs> What I, was the reaction? I, I, would, I, I stopped writing, <laughs> and I looked at him and said, really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And he, he he started laughing, and he, you got me. Uh, but it was it was a quote, too good not to use.
1: Oh, yeah. You yeah. should have been shot if you didn't use that quote. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: but again, today, even if a driver did say that, and somebody printed it, they better preface that quote with a few words to say ingest or, you know. And you did that in the story. Yeah. You absolutely said he wasn't serious. And, no, I, but the, you would have to do that today if somebody said it because of, like you said, the, the reaction that driver would get.
1: Another thing that I think is important to note is the fact that he trusted you with that quote. If it had been somebody that he didn't know He would have never said anything like that. Even then, he wouldn't have said anything like that. He trusted you to not make a big deal out of it and to relate to the readers that he was just kidding. That's
2: the benefit you got back then by getting to know these drivers. Absolutely. Beyond the fact that they just drove race cars. You got to know something about them. I just finished telling that story of Ricky playing Superman off house roofs and diving into the sand. You know, I would have never known that story if Ricky hadn't been the type of person to know and to trust who he was talking to. We were able to do that. A lot of us were able to do that in those days because I think the circumstances were much different for the media then than
1: they are now. Another incident that I really wanted to hone in on with you was the 1991 race at (laughs) Sears Point. Ricky Rudd won that race. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He won the race. And Davey Allison, God rest his soul, he finished second. Let I me tell you to.
2: something. That was a unique event in more ways than one. Number one, Ricky made what everybody thought was a mistake as they came to the white flag with Davey as the leader. Ricky got into the back of Davey and absolutely turned him around off the track and went on to take the white flag. Now, when he comes back around, we're all expecting the checkered flag because how many times have we seen a bump and run? Now, admittedly, this is a harsh one, and Rudd did admit he did it. But this was a harsh one, but it still looked like the same routine we'd seen so many times in so many places. So when Ricky came around to take the checkered flag, it was a black flag. <laughs> Nobody was more shocked than we were or him. <laughs> Yeah. So he got the black flag, and five seconds later, here comes Davey, and he gets the checkered flag. Now, what NASCAR had done effectively was to disqualify Ricky from the victory. How many times over the years? You can't count them. I know you can't, but you've heard him. How many times over the years has NASCAR told us they didn't want to change the final outcome and disqualify a driver because they wanted the fans to leave the track knowing who won the race. This was not the case. And oh, was there a brouhaha afterwards. For two hours, Ricky's Hendrick team with Wade Wilson, the crew chief, Ricky, Davey, Robbie Yates, they just debated NASCAR and debated and argued about how that race should come out. And of course, Wade Wilson was busy telling NASCAR, don't take the race away from us. But they did. Effectively, they did it by pushing back Ricky from the finish line to the five seconds, to the place he was when he bumped Davey, effectively making him second place and taking the win away from him and giving it to Davey. Now, you can just imagine the reaction from the Hendrick team, from Waddell, and from Ricky. Justified reaction. I think so, too. I mean, I I don't condone, I don't really condone uh, that kind of, uh, of driving by Ricky, but by the same token, and let's be honest, Rick, isn't that what fans come to see?
1: Yes, sir. All right. Absolutely.
2: How many television commercials have you seen for a NASCAR race where there's a wreck involved in the commercial? How many? All of them. And so, therefore, this is the kind of thing that NASCAR fans expect. So when it was over and the decision came out the way it did, Ricky was so infuriated, he thought about quitting. He said, I might just go on and do something else. He said, If you want pro wrestling, you got it here in NASCAR right now. And I think I might have to think about what I'm going to do in the future. And of course he didn't quit of course, but he was that upset.
1: I think it's one of those things that fans tend to bring up and media tend to bring up, the whatabouts. If you penalize Ricky Rudd for nineteen ninety one Sears Point, why don't you penalize Rusty Wallace? Yeah. Why don't you penalize Rusty Wallace for the 1989, it the Wednesday? The yeah. It triggers
2: the debate. It triggers the debate. And, uh, you know, yeah, NASCAR has disqualified drivers in the past. In fact, I think it's the first race at Charlotte. Yes, sir. Yeah. Was, yeah, Glenn Linaway Dis- yeah. got disqualified. But its main standing through the years has been not to do that. But it did it at Sears Point. And it makes you scratch your head. Because you try to find out which line of reasoning they are going to follow. For years, they did this. Now, all of a sudden, they do this. And you know something? I don't really know that they've done it since. Not in this fashion. Oh, no.
1: Oh, absolutely not. Because there's nobody been disqualified. Absolutely.
2: To be honest, when they should. That's right. And that's what makes this particular race uh, uh, unique. Because NASCAR's ruling was something so far removed. From what they'd ever done before or since.
1: That was in 1991. And a couple of years before that, <laughs> Ricky Rudd had gotten together with none other than Del Earnhardt at North Wilkesboro in the fall of both 1988 and 1989. And Ricky said in the interview that after the race in 1989, he left the infield of that racetrack under a tarp. In I believe it was Larry McReynolds' car, because you know fans were pretty close to rioting.
2: Yeah, they were. They were, and and it, because he got in he got in a tangle with Dale, of course, and everybody naturally thought Ricky would, uh, was at fault, and there the when the race was over. The boos came cascading down on Ricky. Well, he made one mistake, in my opinion. At the time when he heard all those boos, he stood on pit road faced the front grandstands, and and took a bow.
1: (laughs) Did he really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. We didn't see him after that. (laughs) Well, you know, he had those run-ins with Del Earnhardt at North Wilkesboro. But he was certainly no stranger to run-ins with other drivers. He got together with Jeff Gordon at Charlotte. Jeff kind of slid up into him at Charlotte coming off turn four, I think with 10 laps or so to go. Ricky responded by jacking his wheels up off the pavement, all the way down the front stretch. And then they both wrecked, I think, going into turn one. He got a big fine over that. And there are other incidents that he was involved with. You know, we can remember Kevin Harvick at Richmond. Kevin Harvick didn't want none of Rooster. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) And then also... He evidently got into it with one of his own crew members at Richmond because he had evidently, he was driving for Robert Yates at the time and he had evidently (laughs) expressed his opinion about the motor room a time or two. And one of the motor guys got in his car, went to Richmond and said, okay, buddy, bop and whacked him in the face. And there's a teaser on the cover of the next week's NASCAR scene. And Ricky's got a big shiner. (laughs) And again, we talked about it in the intro. He seems so humble off the racetrack, but you get him into that race car, and and it's no holds barred, buddy. It was different. How would you describe his personality away from the racetrack?
2: Very pleasant. Very pleasant. Uh, There's no question about it. And uh, if he, like other drivers at the time, if he liked you, you, you got along famously. Uh, I never I never even heard him sw- use a swear word to be honest with you and uh, but the boy <laughs> that was different when it was on the track
1: Okay, Steve, huh. sit back. <laughs> you know here a week or so ago, I asked on Twitter if any listeners had any questions for you and I to kind of tackle and got several. Awesome responses from that, but Jeremy Ruckelhoff and at NASCAR man underscore R, otherwise known as Tom McCourt, they, <laughs> they wanted to know about J.D. Stacey. Oh. Now, how much time do we have? Oh, my God! Because he is absolutely one of these, I don't know, shadowy figures throughout NASCAR history. That, so where do you
2: go, man? That's a fair statement, a shadowy figure. It came out of nowhere. In the late 70s. Now, I wasn't even at Grand National Scene at the time that he showed up. Nobody knew much about him. But he came in in 1977 with a team with Neil Bonnet driving for him. And Neil was still more or less trying to find his way. And then, I think the next year, about 78, Farrell Harris. Farrell Harris. That's right. Yeah. He came to be the driver for Stacy. Now, Stacy's wealth, supposedly, was built upon a coal mining machine he created. And obviously, Farrell Harris was part of the Kentucky coal mining scene at that time. So they got together. But things went south in a big hurry.
1: Well, evidently, JD Stacy was the owner, but no at money. some point had to borrow from what Sane said, like 80000 bucks from promise, Harris.
2: A promissory, no, yeah. $90,000. Okay. Yeah. And wow. he's supposedly the owner. Now, what the world Farrell was thinking to give him that money, I don't know. But obviously he did <laughs> yeah. not repay it, uh, and Farrell brought a suit against him, okay? And about the same time, Harry Hyde, who'd been the crew chief at that particular time, also brought a suit against him, and it had to do with property that Harry had near Charlotte Motor Speedway, that apparently Stacy got his hands into it and uh, promised to pay X amount of dollars and never did. Now he's got two guys, suing him in the course of two seasons. And by the way, he never ran a full schedule during those two seasons. And by the way, unknown to many people, he'd already been involved in several lawsuits before that. And all of them- The plot thickens. Uh, all of them had come to a settlement, all right? Now he's involved in two of them, uh, with Farrell and, and with Harry Hyde. And nobody knows what in the world is going on exactly until it got even worse, in 1978, I think it was, J.D. Stacy's Cadillac was parked <laughs> <laughs> at a Charlotte yeah, area in. Yeah. Inn, and two cops were just traveling by. And they happened in those wires extending from the bottom of that Cadillac. So they stopped to take a look. And what they found is wires were attached to dynamite.
1: Ten sticks All right, underneath of dynamite. The
2: pad- underneath the driver's seat. <laughs> <laughs> and to make a long story short, that was rigged up so that the minute that Stacy went into reverse, the car would explode. And that'd be the end of Stacy. Now, this was not the first time Stacy had had his life, shall we say, threatened. The uh, Cadillac had bulletproof glass. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> bulletproof So you glass. knew something was up. <laughs>
2: oh, man. <laughs> Harry had said some uncomplimentary things to Stacy. They all figured he was the one that rigged up the car. But the State Bureau of Investigation came by, looked all over Harry's property, found some dynamite. But it was used to uh, clear land rather than anything to do with a bomb. And it wasn't the same type. So no, no charges or anything were ever brought against Harry. So he was pretty much out of the picture. But to this day, they can't point a finger at whoever did that.
1: Well, as you can well imagine, Grand National Scene, and Gene Granger in particular, was all over this story. The November 28th, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene, the headline on the inside cover of that week's issue said, Is Jim Stacy's life in danger? Whoa! <laughs> that happened on November the 8th at the Holiday Inn in Concord. There was the front page photo of Stacy and some of the detectives or whatever it was. But then inside, there was a full two-page spread. The centerfold laid out the details. There was three or four stories on that package. And you mentioned this. One of the stories, the headline read, no link found between Bomb and Harry Hyde. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> In those days, it was... Uh- important for us to follow up stories and a lot of times we did in the same issue because we we're essentially at one time bi-weekly right yeah. and so we wrapped up everything and put it into the paper and uh, we're at the granger i wasn't there yet so uh rob griggs the founder of of scene instructed granger to what keep on the story and the final uh analysis of it all was wrapped up in one issue where it told about the incident itself about the uh Trouble Stacey's having with Hyde and Farrell Harris, and then the fact that Hyde was cleared of any wrongdoing at this. And after that point, well, the situation really never raised its head again because as far as I know, nobody's name as being involved with that was brought to public
1: knowledge. Ooh, we could do some investigative reporting (laughs) and put that story to bed. How about that?
2: Yeah, once and for all, I'll tell you what, you do it.
1: (laughs) J.D. Stacey goes from that situation Earlier in the year, the team with Harry Hyde and Neil Bonnet had broken up and that was a big story for quite some time. At what point did he start sponsoring like basically every race car in that garage?
2: well, at one time I was at scene when I saw that right yeah there were at least seven cars, seven seven, along with his own carrying JD Stacy name on the quarter panel as the sponsor. in fact, I remember <laughs> I remember. We did two things at the time. Uh, we wanted to get a shot of all those cars lined up. And he sponsored guys like Billy Hagan and uh, Juni Donlevy, uh, Dave Marcus, people like that. And so we wanted to get all seven cars lined up at such an angle so that you could see each one of their quarter panels with the J.D. Stacy name on it. Now, of course, I'd only been there a little while, but we'd never attempted anything. Like that, uh, but we got it done, and we got the picture shot, and we did run it. <laughs> and then, then the next week, we uh ran a separate picture of another car, and I forget who it was. It was a you know an independent backmarker guy, but we got that shot, and he had J.D. Stacy on his quarter panel as well. But you had to read the other fine print. Top of J.D. Stacy's name was "I wish," then J.D. Stacy. Sponsored my car. (laughs) That
1: was great. If the check would clear. Yeah. (laughs) What was his deal? You know, obviously he had had some run-ins with other teams, other drivers, the Harry Hyde incident, the bomb incident. And the non-payment on their sponsorship. Was he maybe calling too much attention to himself? What was going on there? Was he just an egomaniac? That
2: is what I always thought. Yeah. That is what I always thought because I could not see any rhyme or reason to what he was doing, especially when he was continually running into financial problems. Now, how he managed to buy out Rod Ocelin. well that's
1: a whole different
2: kettle of fish. Exactly. Yeah. At the 1981 season was going on. Uh, what he did was buy up Dale Earnhardt's team. Dale Earnhardt wanted no part of J.D. Stacy. Yeah. It was the late July race of 81 in Talladega. Where Earnhardt decided he had had enough. Yeah. Now, he left the race early, and I was standing there in the garage area watching him closely.
1: And watching this happen. Exactly. Yeah. That must have been amazing.
2: I had gotten a tip that it was going to happen today. So, I watched him get out of the car. He stood up, took a towel to his face. He was sweaty and hot, and Stacy was standing there. And Earnhardt turned toward him and said some words that I could not hear. Come to find out later, he's basically telling Stacy he was going to quit. And uh, Stacy, I remember, thought about it for a minute and said, I think you're making a big mistake, but that's what you want to do. Go right ahead. That whole conversation took about three minutes, and Earnhardt walked away. And that was that.
1: That was that. That. And the rest is history, baby. That's right. Because
2: Earnhardt knew that it was safe to leave because behind the scenes, a deal was being cooked up between Wrangler, his sponsor, and independent driver, Richard Childress. Who? Yeah, him. Yeah. Richard
1: Childress. I think I've heard that name somewhere before.
2: And Richard was uh, a better independent driver, was reasonably successful. He was, was, in the end, given uh, an adequate sponsorship by Wrangler to get out of his car and put Earnhardt into it, which he agreed to do for the last, I think it was 11 races of the season, and then they'd go their separate ways. Uh, and that is exactly what happened. Now, Earnhardt didn't exactly burn up the track in those final 11 races with Childers, but he wasn't bad either. And that led to a decision that Childers had to make at the end of the year. Do I go back to driving, or do I concentrate on being a team owner and have someone drive for me? Well, Richard was from the Winston-Salem area. R.J. Reynolds is from the Winston-Salem area. Hello.
1: His now we know Piedmont now we know what we Airlines
2: know. is from the Winston-Salem area. I have no proof, but I, I I think they got together and cooked up a deal, which Piedmont became the sponsor for Richard Childress, so he could continue to be a team owner. And guess who his first driver was. Ricky Rudd. You got it. <laughs> and from that point on, history was made.
1: Well, you know, JD Stacy finished out the 1981 season with Joe Ruttman and then started the next season with Joe, but then hired Tim Richmond. Right. And in 1983, he had Morgan Shepard and Mark Martin early in his Winston Cup career and Rodney Combs. And after that, there's no mention of JD Stacy, Jim Stacy, or whoever. Right. In the 35 years since. So, where did he go?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I really do not. Uh, some of it figured he was back to the coal mining country. Some of us figured that he just went south. In other words, uh, we've talked this whole show about JD Stacy's financial and legal problems. Maybe he went into hiding. <laughs> <laughs> But he was never heard from again, never. And this was, at the same time all this with J.D. Stacy was going on, another guy was throwing money around. Warner Hodgson. Exactly. Yeah, The same pattern, only Warner didn't deal with sponsoring cars. He became a part owner in Junior Johnson's team, and I know he had to lay out some money to do that, because I know Junior Johnson. And he also sponsored races, and he bought into racetracks. And eventually, he ran out of steam and money, too, and faced lawsuits. Uh, he he faced major financial difficulty. He uh, had to sell back. Is not sell back, but he gave up his ownership in uh, Junior Johnson's team, and Junior became the sole owner again. So he followed pretty much that same path. But he was not necessarily the nefarious character. Everybody. Yeah, was. he didn't seem to have uh, that no. kind of criminal. No, he didn't. Yeah, he just. I th- you know, he just overstated his bounds. Straight out of his territory, spent too much money, didn't get enough of it back. And it wasn't until a couple of years later we heard a story about him standing before a judge, uh, asking the judge to allow his company to create a new housing project or residential project. He needed the money and he was really desperate. And I think, I think he got that project going, but that's the last we ever heard of him.
1: What do you think Jim Stacy's legacy is gonna be? What can people learn from his story today?
2: that you have to be honest, you have to pay your bills, you can't mislead people, and you can't do the wrong thing and claim to be right. That's what I think they have to learn from J.D. Stacey. Well, Rick, it's about time to end this week's show, but I got to tell you something. I heard your podcast with Dennis Punch. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know the, where this is going. <laughs> he told the story about you catching that foul ball at Dodger Stadium. Now that was the gospel truth. Oh, I yeah, caught it. Here is yeah. something that's even better. I think you got a hold of a foul ball one time in Anaheim. My Anaheim, very Angel. first yeah, major league
1: the, foul ball. The Angels yeah. Stadium.
2: Yeah, I was there. Yes, you were. You did not catch this particular. No, foul. No, I didn't but you ran over human beings <laughs> to get to it. <laughs> I distinctly remember you getting up and running down the aisle to where that foul ball had entered the stands. In your way was this kid.
1: No, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. This story has gotten better and better over the years. Nah,
2: the kid. <laughs> you ran into that kid, and the last thing we all saw of that kid was two feet sticking up the
1: air between a pair <laughs> of seats. As you went and you got that foul ball. (laughs) And let's just say that at that time, I wasn't as uh, svelte (laughs) as I I am now. I I wasn't nearly the physical specimen that I am now. That
2: was Sasquatch on a mission.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you what, I remember that distinctly. And I remember going after that foul ball. I do not. I do not. I do not. I'll swear to it till my dying day. I do not remember a kid. Okay? okay. I don't remember running over again. You kid. blocked
2: bad memories out of your You know, <laughs> you blocked away bad <laughs> memories. You just don't want to have them. That's what it was.
1: Well, I do remember the ball actually wound up a row up from where I was. So I actually not only had to sprint after this ball, I had to jump
2: over the rows. Yeah. And at a particular time, that was the most exercise you've done in a year. <laughs>
1: Well, all I can remember after that, I came up with that ball, and it was like the angels in heaven started singing. <laughs> it was like the Hallelujah Chorus. And I came back, and it was you and Jeff Owens, and I want to say Dan Zacharias from Ford. Right. And you guys were laughing your butts off. <laughs> I mean, I hey, Ed, to be honest with you, I did not care. I had a major league foul ball.
2: <laughs> yeah, you were acting like it too. I never saw anybody so happy. But that's where you were. Hey, Christmas is coming up.
1: (laughs) And that will be always be my favorite Christmas story, even though it wasn't Christmas. So (laughs) That's my story and I'm sticking to it. That is the cool thing about doing this podcast. That's the reason why we're doing this podcast in the first place is to remember this podcast is about bringing up good memories. It's about discussing maybe memories that weren't quite as good, but putting it all into perspective. And Steve, that was life on the road.
2: Speaking of the media, uh, one of the guys, one of the guys, yeah, who was our colleague at what was then NASCAR scene, moved on, was with ESPN in his last gig. That's Bob Pockris. Pocky, yeah. Yeah, that's him. And I never met uh, a harder working guy uh, in the media than Bob. He he always dug for the stories. He didn't want scene to get beat any way, how, or shape. And that's how hard he worked. And he was... It's that same way as he moved out through his motorsports career. Uh, unfortunately, ESPN has no longer seen the reasons behind retaining uh, a motorsports writer. And Bob Pockris, one of the, the best in the business, is now basically uh, looking for work. I hate to
1: Yeah, free agent. Yeah, yeah, I hate yeah. to
2: fr- fa- phrase it that way, but that's what came to mind. I can tell you right now, Bob's not going to have any trouble. He's one of the best. No. And I'm very, very proud to have worked with him. And I know you are too. And I know that the fans would really like to see Bob remain in NASCAR because he's good for the sport.
1: Well, actually, Bob Pocris is my legacy in the sport. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because when I left scene, that's who you guys hired to replace me. So, you know, in a way, I'm proud of that. Because (laughs) I opened the door for Bob Pocris to come onto the scene, literally. I am so proud of the reporter that he is because he is absolutely hardcore Uh,
2: absolutely and i i really really hope things turn out very well for him
1: they will they absolutely will with that said steve patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast itunes leave us a review steve it's good to see you back man man it's been a pleasure
2: thank you very much rick